0: are looking at that portion of the Word of God known as Paul's, the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Colossians, we have considered how that at the very outset Paul has identified himself as to his office in the church and as to the way in which he was called to that office. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God having never seen the Colossian congregation in person, was imperative, highly important, that he establish with them his apostolic relationship and the authority which he had over them for their edification by virtue of his being an apostle. As an apostle, he belonged to that group which was the first gift of Christ to the Church, which was, in fact, the foundation of the Church. And the scope of his office, his responsibility, and his duty was toward the entire Church of Jesus Christ, not one local congregation. And his commission he received not from men but directly from God, directly from Jesus Christ. And so Paul lays the groundwork for his instruction by first establishing his authority towards this congregation and consenting with him in this instruction and of actively participating in the prayer and thanksgiving at the beginning of the letter was also Timothy, evangelist, apostolic assistant, but here simply called brother. The recipients of the letter are, in, we're informed in these words, uh, verse 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ in Colossae. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ in Colossae. Now, there are three cities mentioned in this letter. Uh, We will hear of, of course, Colossae, the city to which Paul was writing, or the the church uh, in the, the city which held the church to which Paul was writing. We will also hear of Laodicea, an adjacent church, and Hierapolis. Now, all three of these cities are, or were, I should say, clustered together within a few miles from one another, six to ten miles, not very long, uh, not very long way away, and they were all located in the inland province of Phrygia in Asia Minor. They were about 100 miles north of the coast of the Mediterranean and about 100 miles east from the coast of the Aegean Sea and From the city of Ephesus, which was close to but not on the coast of the Aegean Sea. They were situated in a river valley known as the Lycus River Valley, and there were mountains that rose up behind them on every side. And it it was, and I suppose probably is, an area of earthquakes and active volcanoes. In fact, shortly before this letter was written, or at least when we think this letter was written, in A.D. 60, there was an earthquake that destroyed most of all three of the cities, which were, of course, subsequently largely rebuilt. Now, this volcanic activity creates very fertile soil, and so there were fertile meadows in which they would graze very large flocks of sheep upon the hillsides going up towards the mountains. And in addition to that, the Lycus River has a chalky substance in it, a mineral substance that it puts upon the shores, and this mineral substance in the water causes it to be very good water for using in the dyeing trade, for taking cloth and dyeing it to be of various different colors. And so what happened was that over the course of time, because of the fertile hillsides, where there were all the sheep that you could graze, and the the usefulness of the water in dyeing, This area became an area in which there was a a very great garment manufacturing industry. That was one of the principal industries. They would, all the way from taking the raw wool from the sheep, turning it into uh, clothing, and then dyeing it to be of various colors. Now, additional to this, these cities stood on what was the principal trade route that went from Ephesus, Ephesus, on the on the uh, in the West all the way across to the Euphrates and with uh, Hierapolis and Laodicea and uh, and uh, uh, Colosse right in the middle of it so they would manufacture clothing and then there was great export revenue as well now that uh, garment manufacture seems to have been the principal thing in Colossae. In fact, uh, it's thought that there was a purple dye that was used there uh, from which uh, we get the word Colossina, I read. It's interesting. Uh, Laodicea was, in addition to having garment manufacture, was a great banking center and commerce and trade and industry and, and it was a political center for the whole region. It was a very wealthy town, as you will recall from Revelation 3. And then... There was Hierapolis, uh, rounding out the triad. Uh, When you have volcanic activity, you often have hot mineral springs that come to the surface, just like we have hot springs in Arkansas and in Nevada and places like that. And Hierapolis had mineral springs which were sought out just then, just as today, For their healing virtues. People would drink them, people would bathe in them, and so Hierapolis was basically what we would call a resort community, uh, a, a health industry. Now Colossae itself was by Paul's day already a very ancient city, and it was a declining city. Before the rise of Laodicea, back in 480 BC, it had been called a great city of Phrygia by Herodotus, the Greek historian. In 401 BC, Xenophon wrote that it was a city inhabited and prosperous and great. Subsequent to that came the rise of Laodicea, and there was a change in the road system, so that the principal trade route no longer cut directly through Colossae, but through Laodicea and went around Colossae, and what happened was the same thing that happened in this country when the railroads replaced the stagecoach, and then when the interstate highway replaced the railroad. Towns that had once been important as centers of trade and commerce and banking, when that principal trade route changed, went into decline. And Colossae went into decline, and all of the prosperity of Colossae, or much of it, was transferred to Laodicea, so that a mere two generations before Paul, which, depending on how you compute your generations, and this author didn't say, could be anywhere from 40 years to 80 years, uh, it was called by the Greek historian Strabo a small town. So, once a great city, prosperous, inhabited, now a small town. So, uh um, I can't give you any sense of what that means population-wise, but certainly it was it was not large, because if you were engaged in business or trade or politics, you would go to Laodicea. If you were interested in health and pleasure, you went to Hierapolis. So that Colossae probably existed at this point only for the sake of the garment manufacturer, only for the sake of industry, and had no longer any of the accessory businesses involved. Now. Like most of the ancient Roman cities of Paul's day, the population was made up of two classes of people, well, excluding Christians, two classes of people, Jews and pagans. There was a large population of Jews in this region. Alexander the Great reportedly had had brought 2,000 Jewish families, which probably would have been, uh, obviously, upwards, probably could have been easily eight to 10,000 people, I imagine. He had brought 2,000 Jewish families into this region from Babylon and uh, Macedonia and some three centuries before Paul. So you had this great relocation of Jews 300 years before Paul to this area. They had prospered, and so many more came because the Jews were always attracted to places where there was business, trade, and banking. And so uh, they came uh, and they established businesses and became very active in trade. However, uh, from the historic writings, and particularly from the Talmud, it appears that the Jews were not only interested in the banking and trade and industry of Laodicea and Colossae, they were also interested in the hot springs of Hierapolis, because in the Talmud it is recorded that the wines and baths of Phrygia have separated the ten tribes from Israel. So they, uh, uh, evidently, the the Jews were interested in the pleasures of this region as well as the business uh, opportunities. In fact, according to one record, by 62 B.C., which would have been, I guess, roughly 120 years before Paul was writing, the the political district of which Laodicea was the capital alone had eleven thousand Jewish freemen residing in it, and that's just the men. So if you add the women, the children, and whatever uh, uh, whatever uh, indentured uh, bondmen there were, you can see that there were many tens of thousands of Jews just in that one district. So very large population of Jews in this region. In fact, we know from the book of Acts, as Paul went through this area, there were always synagogues for him to preach in. Never had any problem finding synagogues uh, to preach in. But I should note, and this will be important, that the Jewish faith in this region was not necessarily the same as what was found in Palestine. We are accustomed to thinking of the Palestinian Faith, the the uh, the Pharisaical faith, the Orthodox Jewish faith, but in reality, as the Jews spread, particularly in the in the previous centuries throughout all of the Greek Empire, they develop they developed into a class of people as, that were known as the Hellenists, the Hellenistic Jews, and these had generally jettisoned uh, uh, many of the uh, Orthodox beliefs, and they had sort of become syncretized with Greek culture. So they were Grecian Jews. They spoke Greek. uh, They they participated in Greek life. They had abandoned many of the tenets of of Judaism. And additionally, uh, there was not only uh, this great number of the sophisticated Hellenized Jews, we know that there was also always this mystical, ascetic strain of Judaism that seemed to be wherever you found the Jews. Uh, perhaps connected back originally with the Essenes, but there was this mystical and ascetic strain, and we'll refer to this later, because uh, the errors which Paul is opposing in this book have within them things that come from a Jewish background, but it is not necessarily the Judaizing, the circumcision party that we find in Galatia. It may be, We'll consider that when we come to it and the likelihood of it. But we just need to know that there is a Ju- substantial Jewish population. There would have been Jewish Christians, no doubt, uh, believers, Jewish believers in the Church of Colossae. Uh, and, and the heresy, the heresies which were arising had facets to them that were peculiarly Jewish, could only come from a Jewish background, like circumcision, for example, or uh, the keeping of the Jewish dietary law, or uh, the new moon and the Sabbath days and the holy days. So, we'll see that that will be an important fact. Now, I said that there were two groups. There is also the pagan element. And the pagan culture in this region was somewhat unique, and I want to talk about that a little bit, because it will be important also as we move into the error that Paul was opposing. The national religious character of the Phrygians contributed something, I think, to this error that he was opposing, because it was a hybrid of Ju- Judaism and Phry- Phrygian paganism. And I found, stumbled across, uh, an excellent description of the pagan religion of this region and some of its characteristics uh, in John Edie's Greek text commentary, who I believe was a Scotsman. Uh, and I just want to read a little bit of this of, to you, uh, a little bit of this to you. It says, he says, It is certain that the Phrygians were inclined to wild superstitions. Their religious worship was a species of delirious fanaticism. The self-mutilated Corybantes were the priests of Sibylle, who under the sacred paroxysm cut and gashed themselves as they reeled, whirled, and danced in frantic glee to the braying of horns and clashing of cymbals, while the forests and mountains echoed the wild clamor of their orgies. The national propensity of the Phrygians was toward the dark and mystical, and they were especially attracted to any mania or extravagance that claimed a near knowledge of, or a maddening fellowship with, the spirit world. Ravings and convulsions were the sure tokens to them of inspiration. Deficiency of intellectual culture left them the more the creatures of whim and impulse so that the errors mentioned by the Apostle in his letter to the Colossians and characterized as intruding into those things he (laughs) hath not seen, will-worship, and neglecting of the body were peculiarly fitted to such a temperament and calculated to exert a strong fascination upon it. The knowledge of this correspondence between the errors propounded and the eccentric propensities of the people must have deepened the fears and anxieties of the apostle. And this was also interesting. We know that at a subsequent period, similar delusions prevailed in the province. The reveries of Montanus originated there about the middle of the 2nd century the leading features of montanism were a claim to ecstatic inspiration the gift of prophecy the adoption of a transcendental code of morality and the exercise of an austere discipline its votaries its devotees were often named Phrygians from the region of their popularity and the heresiarch himself was born on the confines of phrygia so uh, I pass on some of the interesting applications to uh, modern uh, uh, evangelical church life that bear a rather close resemblance to uh, to the fanaticism of the heathen Phrygians. Perhaps we can talk about that some other time. But it does give you some idea of the characteristics of the surrounding and the religion and the background that these people would have been coming out of. Now, of course, our letter is not to the pagans in Colossae or to the Jews. It is to the church in Colossae, the church of Jesus Christ, and that's what we want to consider next. This church was not founded by Paul or under Paul's preaching. Uh, in fact, there is a very clear indication that he had never even been to Colossae. It appears that the church, as we will see later, was founded under the preaching of one Epaphras, who also had been the one who communicated to Paul the present state of the church, and who was also currently imprisoned in Philemon 23, he is called my fellow prisoner, Epaphras. How he got imprisoned, I don't know. Uh, he evidently showed up at Rome. He either was sent to Rome imprisoned or became imprisoned at Rome. Who knows how exactly that came about? His exact office in the Colossian church, if any, his relationship to the to the Colossian church is never really addressed. Uh, so uh, that's just never made clear. He's called a faithful minister of Christ to you, but we will observe that that language is not necessarily indicative of any pastoral relationship or, or official relationship in the church. Quite possible that Epaphras was an apostolic evangelist. Now we've noted that um, this letter is not addressed in the outset to the congregation in Colossae, to the church in Colossae, it is addressed instead descriptively. Rather than introducing them by their external union, that they were a congregation, that they were all joined together in one visible congregation, he introduces them instead by their spiritual grace that they had received. They are called the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. So he doesn't tell us merely who they are, but what they are. And this is a very important fact to observe, because by giving us this description, Paul tells us something of the nature of the true church. Because the name of church is claimed by many, but uh, many have a name that they live and are yet dead. In fact, Many are nothing more than a sham, a fraud, and a facade in claiming the name of church. So we must remember that we're not looking just for a name, but for the reality of a thing. And so we need to know what the reality of the thing is. And that is something that Paul will tell us something about here in his address to this congregation. Those who claim the name of church ought to be held and tried by this touchstone, and if they fail that test, their claim ought to be rejected. Paul first describes the Colossian Christians as saints, which of course literally is holy ones or sanctified ones, and that's perhaps one of the most common descriptions applied to believers in the New Testament, in the Word of God. There are two senses in which the word holy or sanctified or saint applies to believers, both of which are relevant for our understanding of how this passage applies. To be holy, first of all, from the word of God, is to be set apart under the service of God, to be consecrated to God for his use and service. It is on the basis of this definition that things and places are called holy in the old testament not because they are intrinsically holy a, a bowl a spoon uh, a, a rock a building cannot be holy in the sense of having any intrinsic holiness but they were consecrated to the service of God like the the vessels so that so that when uh, at at, uh, at Belshazzar's feast when they're drinking and feasting and making merry a bunch of pagans drinking out of the out of the out of the gold goblets that were used in the service of God in the temple robbed from the temple uh, the old definition of sacrilege uh, they were uh, they were committing a great sin those things were not were not to be used for pagans to feast by and mock God. They were consecrated to the service of the temple, so they were holy things. Just in the same way, it is said that the priests and the Levites were holy. They were sanctified unto God. Numbers, chapter three, verses twelve and thirteen, talking about, uh, I believe it's the Levites, explains that God, you know. Uh, always took to himself the firstborn whatever opened the womb as he said that was belonged to God if it was in the flock or and so God says that the firstborn of all the children of Israel belonged to him as well but instead of taking all of the firstborn to be his servants he says that he substituted the levites the levites shall be mine because all the firstborn are mine, for on the day that I smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I hallowed unto me, I sanctified unto myself all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast, mine shall they be, I am the Lord. So, it doesn't mean he made men and beast all intrinsically holy, it means he set them apart for himself. And so instead of taking the firstborn of each family, he took the Levites instead as a tribe, one of the 12 tribes, to be his. In the New Testament, every believer is in a sense a Levite because the church itself is called a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2.9. A holy priesthood that serves God with spiritual sacrifices, 1 Peter 2.5. Christians are no longer the servants of the world or of the devil, They are consecrated to a new office. They are placed by God into His holy service to do His will, to attend unto Him in ministry, service, and worship. And without going into this any further, let me just say that if you will read your Bible with this concept in mind, you will find an abundance of references that show forth this principle, that to be holy, to be sanctified, is to be set apart to the service and and usage and ministration of God. Now, of course, this is only the first way in which Christians are called holy and saints. Christians and the, the true church are also actually ethically holy. In both the Old and New Testaments, God makes clear that true holiness is conformity to his law. Some people make a mistake about this. They think that under the Old Testament, holiness was just being set apart to God, and under the New Testament, it's, uh, it's being actually made holy. And what we find is that actually those concepts transcend both Testaments, that, uh, that, that holiness is being set apart to God, and holiness is also, where it is possible, being conformed unto the law of God. And we know that because in Leviticus 19, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then what does he say? You shall fear every man, his mother, and his father, and keep my Sabbath. Turn not to idols. Don't make molten gods. Uh, don't steal, don't deal falsely, don't lie, don't swear falsely by my name, don't profane my name, don't defraud your neighbor, don't curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, don't do unrighteousness in judgment, don't go up and down as a tailbearer, don't hate your brother, don't enact take vengeance, keep my statues, don't prostitute your daughters, keep my Sabbaths, don't seek familiar spirits. <coughs> Honor elderly people. Don't vex strangers that dwell in your land. Use just balances and weights, and on and on and on it goes. He says, Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God, and you shall keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord which sanctifieth you. So very clearly, already in the Old Testament, the concept of holiness is that of conformity to the commandments, to the law of God, and the law of God is simply uh, the application of God's righteousness for us in our surroundings. So, we find that not only uh, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, what we find is that... Uh, In all the New Testament, perhaps there are a few more prominent themes than than the necessity of the holiness of the people of God. We're told that they are holy that they must be holy, that it's their duty to pursue holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. We're told how they become holy, why it is that they're holy. We're told how their holiness gradually grows and how they're ultimately conformed to God's perfect holiness in the last day. And if you want to read about some of those things, I'll just give you a list. Romans chapter 6, Ephesians 2, all of Ephesians 5 and 6, Colossians chapter 3. First uh, Peter chapter 2, 1 John in its entirety, the theme, true Christians are renewed in heart and in mind, gradually sanctified by God's Spirit unto greater and greater holiness. What is sanctification, uh, the ca- Shorter Catechism asks? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, which of course is knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, and are uh, and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. There is, of course, a third sense, which is that concept of positional sanctification Uh, uh, perfect sanctification in Christ Jesus, as the scriptures say, Christ Jesus has made unto us our sanctification. But I don't think that's what's in view here. Now, Paul not only describes them as consecrated to the service of God, renewed by him unto actual holiness of life, he describes them in another phrase, doesn't he? He describes them as faithful brethren. To the saints and faithful brethren, not two different groups of people, one group of people with two descriptions. Now, the commentaries are divided on what the word faithful means here, because in the scriptures it has two two meanings, this particular Greek word. It can mean steadfast, persevering, uh, uh, loyal, that type of faithful. It also can mean believing, a person who believes. Uh, We see that used Uh, Several times. If we understand him to mean faithful in the sense of steadfast, then here Paul would be contrasting the Colossians with those who professed to be brethren, but who were fickle in their exercise of that relationship. In fact, who would even abandon their profession of brotherhood whenever need or trouble arose. You are not so, he would be saying. You are faithful. You are steadfast in the exercise of brotherly love and Christian relationship, always eager to support, console, aid, and comfort, great and constant in your true love for the brethren. The word, of course, we said is used in another sense to mean building in which case, he would be addressing them as the saints and believing brethren, those who hold firmly and fully to the true doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not as if there were such a thing as unbelieving brethren, but rather he would be emphasizing this quality, that they hold fast to the truth. Uh, the commentators offer various arguments as to why one rendering ought to be preferred over another, But I think at the end of the day, they sort of cancel each other out. And I'm not persuaded that either one can be said to be exclusively the meaning with any uh, firmness. And finally, we see that Paul addresses them not only as saints and faithful brethren, but as saints and faithful brethren in Christ. Because it is only by union with Christ that one can become a true saint, isn't it? And a brother... Or sister in the household of God. It is only by receiving Christ as He is offered in the gospel that we gain these privileges, that we can be rightly described by these words. We cannot have another Christ or a different Christ from the one offered in the gospel and still be true saints and brethren. And this will be important as we go along in the letter, because the Christ the Christ that was being taught and held forth by some of these heretics and errorists was not the Christ offered in the Gospel. Not at all. Now if I can make a a couple of applications, three to be exact, and then we'll conclude for today. And I would say that uh, they're somewhat obvious, but just because they are plain applications doesn't mean that we should treat them with indifference or contempt. In fact, the questions raised by this text are vital to our own salvation. Paul says that true Christians are saints. Christ indeed is our sanctification, but he also cleanses us from all unrighteousness. To be sanctified is to be set apart to the service of God. It is in fact to whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, to do all to the glory of God. This means that those who go around minding nothing but the world and the things of this world, those whose thoughts are never toward God, toward the service of God, those who only occasionally, when some temporary religion strikes them, seek out God, such are not true saints and have no hope of heaven or salvation unless they wake up to their lost estate. How is it among ourselves? Are we dedicated to serving God in all things? Is the operative principle in our life that of consecration to God? Or are we centered only on ourselves, on our own desires, on the things of this world, or worse yet, on the lusts and pleasures of this world? True saints are more and more conformed unto the righteousness of God. Now, I'm not telling you that in order that you might examine yourself for great godliness, for I fear that no sooner than you look within yourself will you find nothing but sin and corruption. But I would ask, do we aspire in our hearts after holiness? For that desire for holiness is a great sign of true conversion. Do we know our own sinfulness and long for the day, when we will be released from the bondage of death. Do we love the law of the Lord? Is the law of the Lord the delight of our heart and the desire and purpose of our will? Or is it a heavy yoke that we hate and kick under? True Christians are also believers, as Calvin says, commenting on a similar uh, the the words faithful brethren in Ephesians 1, Calvin says, No man is a believer who is not also a saint, and no man is a saint who is not a believer. True Christians are not only believers, they are faithful brethren. This is the commandment, that you love one another. Love is the fulfilling of the law. This love, this faithfulness to the brethren, is held forth in the New Testament as a cardinal trait. Of true Christianity. Christ warns us that if we neglect this faithfulness to the brethren, it is as if we did so to him in person. Remember the separation of the sheep and the goats? And he says to the one that you fed me when I was hungry and you visited me when I was in prison and all those things. And they say, when did you do this? When did we do this to you, Lord? And he says, when you did it to mine, you did it to me. And the others who didn't do those things, they said, we never saw you in prison, Lord. We never saw you sick or hungry. And he says, basically, when you failed to do it to those who were mine, it was as if you were failing to do it to me directly. Christ puts no distinction as to these duties between himself and his people. If you do not love the brothers of Christ and the sisters of Christ, you do not love Christ. John reminds us that to hate one's brother is to be no better than Cain, who was cursed of God. In fact, to be no better than the devil himself, who was a liar and murderer from the beginning. James warns us of the damning hypocrisy of those who would profess such brotherly love, but when faced with the necessities of their brethren, ignore and neglect it. Are we believers of God's word? Are we faithful brethren? In Christ are we faithful in our love and in our service to the brethren thirdly I would say finally that these things are found in us only through Christ saints and faithful brethren in Christ only by being spiritually joined to him do we receive such grace should you find yourself wanting in these things it will be of no benefit to try and conjure them up in yourself. Rather, you must have to do with the true Christ as He is set forth in the Gospel. Only by believing and trusting and receiving Him as He is there presented can you become a true child of God, a true saint, a faithful brother in Christ. Whosoever will may come and take of the water of life freely. By faith and repentance, we find salvation and forgiveness of sin. And then we know the grace of God in Christ Jesus that transforms sinners into saints and worldlings and persecutors of the church of God as Saul into faithful brethren. Amen.